podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Dr. Alice Edwards from UNHCR. So Alice is a senior legal coordinator in the protection division at UNHCR. She was previously a lecturer in international refugee law and human rights law here at the RIC, and she also held a lecturing post at the University of Nottingham. So I'm sure many people in the room know Alice. We're all looking forward to hearing the paper. Um, and tonight Alice is talking about a numbers game, counting refugees and burden. <coughs> Thanks, Kirsten. It's very nice to be uh, back here, but thank you very much for the invitation. And I was able to uh, add this on to the International Humanitarian Law and International Refugee Law Conference. So uh, this is a completely, although a little bit related, uh, topic. Um, I just wanted to first say that there's a slight change in the title. Um, I've added protection. So it's, in fact, about counting refugees and international protection and burden sharing. In fact, burden sharing is somewhat in the back background as the reasons why we are counting uh, refugees and why we spend so much time, or at least states spend so much time on the numbers. Uh, I should also say that this is based on a presentation on a public lecture I gave in Australia in uh, December, so there is a longer uh, version which will be available in written form if you uh, would like any of the uh, sources, etc. But I should also, put one final caveat to my remarks, is also to say that this isn't a research paper. Um, although it does draw from research in some of its analysis and findings, but what I think it does do is highlight some areas where further research could uh, be taken. Uh, but, it's, but rather it is, a, it is from the perspective of a policymaker. So I'm removing myself from my old days uh, and to my current position as a policymaker. So it is really a reflection on some of the challenges that we're facing at UNHCR and with some ideas and possible uh, ways in which we can respond. So essentially the presentation is about numbers. Um, but it is not only about numbers. I am not a, a statistician, nor am I a social scientist. It is really, however, about the impact of counting numbers and what numbers mean for the international refugee protection regime. The presentation will be in, in two main parts, but a third part as the conclusion. So first I'll provide a very brief statistical uh, Snapshot, So you can have a look at some of the figures. I have to say that these figures are from 2011. The way in which the figures are collated means that they come out uh, a year after. So we're now in January. The figures actually for 2012 are not yet available. And one can perhaps assume that many of the figures will be larger. So that is something perhaps we can <laughs> uh, agree on. But otherwise, the numbers are fairly... Uh, they're from 2011, but fairly constant. The three areas I wanted to discuss uh, in relation to the impact of talking about numbers on the refugee protection regime is first the concept of a refugee, who is a refugee and whether and how it's been impacted by size questions. 
We're also going to talk about access to territory and reception conditions and then about durable solutions. So essentially I'm asking how is size or numbers, the large sizes essentially of refugees, the large scale movements of refugees, directly or overtly or indirectly had an impact on the refugee protection regime and thus on the willingness of states to cooperate in this regime. Woven throughout will be suggestions for ways to move forward, although, of course, these are very conservative uh, suggestions. And in doing so, of course, suggesting a reversion to a much more accurate interpretation and application of the 1951 Refugee Convention and the other international instruments underpinned by the need for international cooperation. So you'll be relieved to know the statistics are all on one slide, so <laughs> you can uh, copy them down uh, as you like. In 2011, UNHCR counted 42 million persons as being displaced from their homes. This is the fifth consecutive year at this level. However, of these, only 15.2 million were refugees and 900,000 were considered to be asylum seekers, or in other words, persons whose claims for refugee status had not yet been adjudicated. The statistics do not include the 5.1 million Palestinian refugees, uh, and this is because, of course, they are under the uh, responsibility of UNRWA. The number of persons in asylum procedures in industrialised countries in 2011 was around 440,000 asylum seekers. This was in fact a 20% increase from 2010. And the asylum seekers came from 44 different countries. The largest rise was felt in southern Europe, mainly Italy and Malta, owing to the movements out of Libya and the North African region as a result of the volatilities there. But the number of asylum claims received across all industrialised countries is still smaller than the population of Dadaab, a single refugee camp in northeast Kenya. So in terms of putting these statistics in perspective, uh, that's something to keep in mind. The figures also do not acknowledge that UNHCR is itself the second largest decision maker in the world, carrying out refugee status determination in 67 countries and in a further 10 together with governments. In 2011, UNHCR received approximately 80,000 new asylum applications, but this was interestingly about 10,000 less than 2010. So UNHCR is receiving less asylum application, but industrialised countries are receiving more. The office rendered approximately 52,000 decisions in the same period. I'll leave you to do the math on how many people that leaves who didn't have a, a decision taken in that particular year. In 2011 and 12, we have seen an increase in the number of complex crises, leading to mass displacement of refugees and migrants across international borders. With conflicts and instability in the DRC, Mali, northern Rakhine state of Myanmar, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen, and with the situations in parts of Afghanistan and Iraq deteriorating, the crisis cycle is really set to continue into 2013. It is also clear that Central and Latin America are becoming more volatile and violent. This December, or sorry, in December 2012, a leaked unofficial report from Mexico showed that 25,000 persons had disappeared over the last uh, six years as a result of this uh, violence, or at least suggested to be a result of this violence. So this region is also one to watch. 
Of course, a particular focus in 2011 and 12 has been on the Arab Spring. The, the Libya crisis saw over 650,000 refugees and migrants escape the fighting. While Tunisia and Egypt generally kept their borders open, a humanitarian airlift organized by UNHCR and the International Organization for Migration, as well as states, shepherded home some 144,000 migrants to their countries in a few short months. Tragically, while the reception centers on the Italian island of Lampedusa filled to the brim, over 1,000 asylum seekers and migrants lost their lives trying to cross the Mediterranean over the course of a few short weeks. At the same time, we know that the European Union was unable to reach agreement on activation of its temporary protection directive, which it had arguably created for something like this purpose. I wouldn't say the exact purpose, but something like uh, this, this purpose. Meanwhile, certain member states of the EU considered for the first time suspending the Schengen Free Movement Zone as approximately 25,000 Tunisians and third country nationals threatened to move through the Union. And of course, temporary protection, one of the reasons it was not activated is because the member states could not agree on burden sharing within the Union, so not with their neighbours uh, across the Mediterranean. At present, of course, there is enormous focus on Syria and the latest statistics from the 10th of February 2013 suggest that there are, or at least state that there are 600, around 670,000 registered, uh, registered persons with UNHCR, but with a total population including those uh, who are awaiting registration of 800,000 persons. And of course, the figures for the, the numbers that are displaced inside Syria um, is not uh, known entirely, but is in the millions. Every other week at UNHCR, we are contingency planning for the next crisis or preparing for the escalation in existing crises. It is predicted that the refugee numbers will be even higher in 2013 than we see currently. The High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, described 2012 to the General Assembly in November this year as a succession of crises. At a December pledging conference, states pledged 550 million US dollars to the organization against an estimated need of 3.9 billion. UNHCR operates in 120 countries with a staff of, of over 1,000. So the staff is also increasing, um, but probably not commensurate with the numbers of refugees. That could be another area <laughs> of uh, interest and research. Finally, a final point of comparison in terms of the numbers is, is against the global, the so-called global migration stock. And I don't like the term myself, but the language comes from the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs, who publishes this global migration stock every five years. Of the global migration stock, although it is slightly increasing year on year at around 1.3%, um, they do indicate that of the world's population, it's only about 3.1% of us who live, work, uh, or study uh, elsewhere. The rest of us are, in fact, quite sedentary, living and dying, living, working, and spending our time in our countries, in our own countries. But of this migrant stock, the percentage which are refugees in 2010, this was the last time they produced their report, so I compared the statistics of UNHCR in 2010, was 4.9%. Uh, okay. 
There is no doubt that the ongoing crises will continue to push people across international borders, but more commonly to be displaced in their own countries. It is clear that the lion's share of burden emanating from conflict and violence is borne and felt by the countries in conflict themselves, and secondarily by those in the neighbourhood, who host approximately 80% of the world's refugees. This is another factor, I think, that needs to be put in perspective depending on where uh, one sits. So how do these numbers relate to or impact upon the protection of refugees? So I said I was going to talk first about the refugee concept or who is a refugee. As we know, the 1951 convention defines a refugee as someone who is outside their country of origin and who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for more, one or more of the convention grounds, so race, religion, nationality, social group or political opinion. Initially limited to refugees fleeing the events in Europe prior to the 1st of January 1951, the convention was... Uh, we say amended, but of course this isn't legally the term, amended by the 1967 protocol to allow states to remove geographical and temporal limitations and to make the convention truly universal in scope. At present there are 148 states parties to either or both the convention and or protocol. There have also been developments at the regional level, notably in Africa in 1969, in Latin America in 1984, and in the European Union in the 2000s, to expand upon the refugee definition to cover broader categories of persons in need of international protection. It is also just worth mentioning that the right to asylum was most recently incorporated uh, into the ASEAN Declaration on Human Rights, uh, recognising the right to apply for asylum as well as we should recognise that the right to asylum in a number of various forms is incorporated in several regional human rights treaties. But for the purpose of today's talk, I will just focus on the 1951 convention definition and how this question of size uh, has impacted or, or purports to impact. So what, do, what have the refugee numbers got to do with the refugee definition? Well, actually, if you look at the drafting history very little at all. The 1951 convention was in fact created to respond to the millions of refugees residing outside their countries of origin after the Second World War and who had been persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, social group or political opinion. While the drafters were conscious of the magnitude of support needed to assist the refugees from the Second World War, this was never intended to disqualify them. Rather, the other provisions of the 51 Convention, such as the Schedule of Rights set out in Articles 3 to 34, dealt with the potential impact of large-scale numbers. For example, not all of the rights are immediately applicable to, to refugees upon arrival, but accumulate uh, over time based on extended stay in the Territory. And if you look at the travel, a number of countries uh, mentioned also economic problems and the rebuilding in the aftermath of the Second World War and their inability, although they would like to, but their inability to provide work rights, for instance, to refugees immediately upon recognition. Yet governments and even courts have imported what I would call so-called size tests into their decision-making, which do not have a legal basis in the text of the Convention. Quantification rather than qualification has crept into the refugee definition. For today's purposes, I would give just one example, which 
has generated a number of responses from states. But there is another example, which I won't go into today unless you ask in the questions, but in relation to the definition of social group, because that's quite a, a technical legal uh, issue. And this, and this issue that I wanted to raise about the numbers is that of so-called war refugees or persons fleeing armed conflict or other situations of violence. While they are the image of being a refugee in the media and in normal um, discussions, they face numerous obstacles to being recognised as refugees and at times more so than those fleeing peacetime oppression. While the Convention itself makes no distinction between refugees fleeing peacetime or wartime violence, and as noted was in fact drafted in the aftermath of the Second World War, classifying a particular situation as an armed conflict frequently distorts the basis for the claim and seems to emphasise issues around the generalised impact of the violence, which may be insufficient for protection under the 1951 Convention, rather than around persecution, and it also has raised questions around credibility of claimants. Many decision-makers seem unable to comprehend fully that violence can be both generalised and discriminate at the same time. Likewise, violence can be widespread as well as targeted simultaneously. A recent UNHCR study entitled Safe at Last showed stark variations in recognition rates at first instance for Afghan, Somali and Iraqi refugees in various European countries. In armed conflict, whole communities may suffer or be at risk of persecution. The fact that many or all members of a particular community may be equally at risk does not undermine the validity of any particular claim. The test is whether an individual's fear of being persecuted is well-founded. In fact, at times the impact of an armed conflict on an entire community should strengthen rather than weaken the risk of any particular individual. Yet much case law has required that an applicant establish a risk of harm over and above others who are caught up in the same conflict. And this is sometimes called a differentiated uh, risk. Another trend in Europe related to the same issue of war refugees as well as elsewhere, has the tendency to grant subsidiary or complementary forms of humanitarian protection rather than refugee status to persons fleeing conflict. Such practices can have significant implications for the status granted as well as the rights that will acquire over time. Crucially, they ignore the primacy of the 1951 Convention and fail to to account for the fact that many of today's conflicts are deeply rooted in ethnic, religious or political differences or that these conflicts are regularly or regularly impact individuals along ethnic, religious, political, social or gender lines and as such fall within the boundaries of the 1951 Convention. As already mentioned, the European Union does have a mass influx response mechanism, this so-called temporary protection, but it has never been activated. Other alternative ways to deal with large-scale influx is via prima facie recognition, which is a strategy used in Africa where refugees, on the basis of large movements and from conflict, are granted refugee status on the basis that it is fairly evident, it's evident on the face uh, that they are refugees. However, whatever approach or mechanism one puts in place, of course, these need to correspond with, with the, with the, uh, with the size of the group. So it's not just that one is fearful of a certain number of refugees and therefore diverts them to a different particular regime, but in fact it needs to be uh, balanced. And of course states need to be willing 
to provide even these alternative forms of protection, which is not always the case either. So the second area I wanted to deal with is about access to asylum. Maybe I'll go back so you can follow on the screen. Perhaps the starkest example of the impact of the question of numbers has had on their refugee regime are the measures taken by states to prevent or deter entry to their territory. During the Cold War, borders were erected by the Soviet Union and others to stop individuals and groups being able to exit. Borders are now constructed instead to prevent, entry, to prevent their entry. While it remains the state's right to control the entry and stay of non-nationals on its territory, the right is limited by international human rights law, including, of course, the right to seek and enjoy asylum and the prohibition on refoulement, that is the prohibition of return of asylum seekers and refugees to where they face threats to their life or freedom. This prohibition includes rejecting asylum seekers at the frontier. Between May 2011 and May 2012, UNHCR noted in its annual Note on International Protection that the incidence of refoulement had increased. Measures adopted by states to deter entry, which James Hathaway called non-entree policies, include, for example, sanctions imposed on carriers for transporting unauthorised arrivals, pre-inspection measures, including offshore immigration officers to check documents prior to embarkation, and the imposition of a visa regime on individuals who had previously been exempt. Interception interdiction measures, pushbacks, border closures, or laws purporting to remove territory from the application of national or international law are at the more extreme end. A recent rebuke to these exclusionary practices of states has come via the judiciary. The European Court of Human Rights held in Hersey versus Italy in 2012 that the Italian practice of pushbacks in the Mediterranean to Libya, this is a practice of turning back boats carrying asylum seekers and migrants. In this case, it it included 22 Somali and 13 Eritrean nationals, was an unlawful practice. Italy was held to be in violation of its obligations under Article 3 of the European Convention, which is the prohibition on refoulement to torture, because despite credible information of risks of torture and ill-treatment in Libya, the Italian government continued to carry out its policy. It was also held to be in violation of the prohibition on collective expulsion and the right to an effective remedy. The jurisprudence is, however, mixed. And just to mention one other uh, case, which is unlike Hersey versus Italy, and this was the US Supreme Court case in Sale, in which the Supreme Court found that the 1951 Convention obligation of non-reformer did not extend to Haitian boat people or Haitian asylum seekers while they were on the high seas as essentially they were considered not to be within the jurisdiction of the United States and therefore to activate its obligations. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, being asked to give an opinion on the same situation, decided that instead that the US's practices interfered with the Haitians' right to seek and enjoy asylum in other countries in the region because the pushbacks returned them to their own country. So they were unable to actually seek asylum anywhere else uh, because of these practices. And they also held that in pushing them back to their country of origin, they violated a number of rights in the American Declaration on Human Rights, such as the right to liberty uh, and dignity, etc. 
Related to this access to territory and reception conditions is a third area, I guess. Essentially, I'm calling this detention as deterrence. And this is essentially the, the increase in the use of detention and other restrictive or um, limited reception conditions in order to deter asylum seekers uh, arriving in the first place. There may be multiple explanations for the rise in these practices. And so this is, as I said, this is not a, a scientific study necessarily, but it would be interesting uh, if there are economists to do these kind of parallels and see where the numbers and the rise in policies uh, take place. But it is interesting that the, sp the speed with which detention policies, once thought settled, are reinvigorated when faced with a rise in asylum figures or a sudden influx is worth exploring. Yet the empirical evidence tells us that the prospect of being detained does not deter irregular migration, nor does it likewise discourage persons from seeking asylum. And here I'm referring to my own research prior to joining UNHCR, but also that of the International Detention Coalition. In fact, as the detention of migrants and asylum seekers has increased in a number of countries, the number of individuals seeking to enter t such territories has also risen, or in the very least has remained constant. Globally, migration has been increasing, albeit we, we saw that over five-year periods it only increases slightly, regardless, in fact, of governmental policies on detention. Except in specific individual cases, detention is generally an extremely blunt instrument of government policymaking on migration. This may be explained in part by the complexity of choices and the mixed motivations of many migrants, which can likely have little to do with the final destination country's migration policies. Stephen Castles, formerly of the University of Oxford, has noted that migration policies fail because policymakers refuse to see migration as a dynamic social process linked to broader patterns of social transformation. Ministers and bureaucrats still see migration as something that can be turned on or off like a tap through laws and policies. Nonetheless, migration and asylum policies can have an impact on where, how, or the routes taken to seek asylum. And we have done a little bit of this mapping at UNHCR at different times to see where the routes and how they, they change. The prospect of being detained in one country may influence an individual's final destination choice, the timing of the movement more likely, or the route or manner of entry. This points to the need at a minimum to perhaps regionalise standards and practices on asylum. For other asylum seekers, detention is accepted as a necessary evil to seeking asylum and therefore does not act as a deterrent at all. And for others still, they may be unaware of the detention policies of their destination countries or even to have little or no say about their journey or their final destination. And here I would refer you to the research by Catherine Costello, uh, which we will be publishing soon in our series. Of course, it is incumbent upon me to point out that detention policies and practices which are mandatory, indefinite or aimed at deterring persons exercising the right to seek asylum are unlawful as a matter of international law. But apart from the legal arguments, there is a growing body of evidence to show that asylum seekers and refugees 
to show that of asylum seekers and persons awaiting deportation released into the community, for instance in alternative to detention programs, 90% or more of persons regularly comply with all legal requirements relating to their cases when they are released to proper supervision and facilities. So here, when they are treated with dignity and they have certainty in the legal process. There is even some evidence to support a correlation between persons who have had their cases rejected through a final procedure being released into alternative detention programs and, in fact, higher voluntary departure rates. Treating asylum seekers with dignity and humanity, of course, has a lot to do with it, and this, the research, uh, bears out, but as does a sense of procedural fairness. Furthermore, alternative options present significant cost savings to government, whereas some governments have been forced to pay out millions of dollars in compensation while others continue to face unpredictable compensation bills for their unlawful detention policies. And I can give you a bit more information if you're interested on who those countries um, are in the, in the discussion. While it needs to be acknowledged that large-scale irregular migration can affect the efficient operation of national asylum procedures, detention is not a cure-all and, in fact, it is not a cure at all. The damaging psychological and physical effects of detention are well known, even for persons who presented no symptoms prior to their incarceration. An interesting study by the Jesuit Refugee Service Europe found that the negative effects of detention on mental health manifest around the three-month mark, making, in fact, everybody vulnerable in detention. Such research questions whether vulnerability categories capture all those who will eventually be rendered vulnerable by detention, often in irreversible ways, do challenge government decision-making uh, on detention. And I would commend this uh, study to you. It is very interesting. Finally, on to durable solutions. From the perspective of persons born in areas of conflict, one is more likely to be a refugee in 2012 than in 2011, yet far less likely to find a durable solution than in the 1990s. There has been a collective failure to move towards solutions in many areas. The High Commissioner for Refugees conti continues to stress that solutions ultimately lie in the political arena largely through the resolution of conflict, a task which is beyond the mandate of humanitarian actors. However, I think that gives us pause to ask what role humanitarian actors uh, should or could play uh, in those uh, peace negotiations, etc. Forms of self-reliance and local integration, as well as naturalisation, are in fact previewed in the 1951 Convention. However, they remain elusive in many parts of the world. In fact, I would even go as far as to say local integration has become a taboo word in the debates of UNHCR's executive committee. This is the organization's 87-member state oversight and advisory body. Yet the focus on voluntary repatriation as the only or the preferred or the most viable solution is neither realistic, uh, is, is not uh, realistic. On the resettlement front... While the number of countries offering resettlement has risen from 14 to 27 over the last seven years, the number of actual places remains around 80,000 annually. And the ability to service this so-called resettlement pipeline has been affected by crises in various regions and is, in any event, quite difficult uh, to service. 
Resettlement did not, and this I should say is not for want of individuals who would qualify for resettlement, but more because of a range of processes as well as with governments in being able to ensure that people are processed speedily and embarked uh, and onto their uh, new resettlement countries. Resettlement did, however, in 2011, benefit refugees from 77 countries of origin in 79 countries of asylum in 2011. Eight out of ten of, per, of persons benefiting from... Uh, sorry, of these, eight out of ten were from major refugee-hosting countries. That's excluding Germany and the United States, which interestingly still feature in the largest uh, numbers of refugee-hosting countries, as well as being resettlement countries. Meanwhile, numerous protracted displacement situations remain unresolved, as we know, causing individuals, of course, to seek their own solutions. In 2011, there were 7 million refugees living in protracted exile. This was the highest figure in 10 years. And of course, along with 27 million internally displaced persons in 25 different countries. A quick statistical comparison paints the picture. 9 million ref refugees returned to their homes between 1991 and 1995, so during the 1990s, amounting to nearly 2 million persons per year. In 2011, the global voluntary repatriation figure stood at only 197,000 persons. This was the lowest figure in 20 years. It is expected that the number of VOLREP uh, cases will be higher in 2012, once, as I said, once the statistics are finalised, in part because of the closure of two African refugee situations, that of the Angolan and Liberian refugees in 2012. The argument that the 1951 Convention does not deal with solutions and that this is an inherent flaw in the instrument, I think is overstated. In effect, in addition to the reference to assimilation and naturalisation in Article 34 of the Convention, the Treaty provides, as mentioned, already an incremental increase in rights enjoyment based on length of stay. For me, this is local integration and moving towards local integration through a rights-based framework. The rights in the Convention includes rights to access wage earning and self-employment. A serious problem with the recognition of, rights, of such rights, however, is that a large number of governments retain reservations to these work provisions, while we know in Africa and elsewhere camp confinement policies are still commonplace and prevent people from engaging uh, in meaningful work outside those areas. This situation as a whole must surely compel refugees to find their own solutions and to move outwards and onwards. While offering resettlement places is a tangible expression of responsibility sharing within, uh, with the countries that, ho sorry, a tangible expression of responsibility sharing with countries that host the bulk of the world's refugees, and it has been instrumental in addressing some protracted refugee situations. As I said, the numbers remain very modest. It also must not be used to shift rather than share burdens, but lead to the leveraging of protection and solutions for those who, in fact, are not resettled. Sharing responsibilities by means of resettlement should not just be a matter of counting and offer, offering places and counting how many, but, in fact, should look more deeply at the benefits to individuals and their families and to the wider community receiving them. 
Finally, facilitating refugees' access to labour markets and labour migration schemes outside their first country of refuge would be an important addition to the more traditional durable solutions. UNHCR has been building our work in this area and exploring possible partnerships with government, and thanks not least to the work of Katie Long, who's at the London School of Economics and some of her work in this area. So in conclusion, there is no doubt that there are many grave humanitarian situations around the world. But how, do we, how we engage with the migration numbers and the refugee statistics is important. How do we keep the humanitarian side of the refugee problem on the international agenda amidst growing concern over irregular migration, security, the economy and other issues that I haven't even mentioned today such as displacement related to climate change? How can we keep the numbers in perspective on the one hand, using them to prompt the international community into action that is commensurate with the actual problems on the ground, and on the other hand, managing the scaremongering that such numbers provoke in national political debates? I only have a few words to conclude and some potential ideas that might be interesting uh, to discuss. First, it is important to recognise that national security and economic issues were also factors during the debates of the 1951 Convention. The drafters were conscious of them. The Convention does not ignore these issues, but in fact accommodates them, including by creating a regime in which rights would accumulate the longer in the territory, etc. It also contains provisions in respect of persons who are considered undeserving of refugee protection in the form of the exclusion clauses. There are also provisions around if you're in a state of emergency and the ability to take national security measures against particular individuals. Second, policy making on displacement matters needs to be grounded in empirical research and sound analysis and not hyperbole. Politicians egged on by the media fuel an increasingly xenophobic and racist climate in many parts of the world. Refugees and asylum seekers are increasingly perceived by states as destabilising to their national borders and security as criminals and terrorists and collectively as threats to international peace and security. I don't, I, this is not new. UNHCR itself is at times guilty of relying too heavily on statistics to focus attention on the size and scale of the problem that they are confronting and to call for donations to respond appropriately. But we know that this can also have the adverse effect of evoking fear that in the end leads to more restrictive asylum policies the further afield from the epicentre of the problem. Psychological studies have shown that the media can create biases and fears which are not grounded in reality and that, and I quote uh, from some research by Paul Slovich, our expectation about the frequency of events is distorted by the prevalence and emotional insecurity of the messages to which we are exposed. While one must acknowledge that there are very real challenges to governments in managing irregular migration, as well as the impact of non-protection-related irregular migration has on asylum systems, a balance needs to be struck to ensure that those in need of international protection are able to access it. Third, asylum is a policy area that by its very nature demands interstate cooperation. The 1951 Convention acknowledges in its preambular paragraphs that the grant of asylum may place unduly heavy burdens on certain countries and further that a satisfactory solution cannot be achieved without international cooperation. UN has been, UNHCR has been working to achieve progress in this area. In 2010 at this uh, 
Um, at the uh, Barbara Howell Bond lecture, of course, the High Commissioner for Refugees called for a new deal on responsibility and burden sharing. Here it seems that regional processes have in the past proved instrumental, albeit not without the support of regional and global powers, and this be, may be one of the ways uh, to move in the future. Today, the Bali process, the Amati process, and other regional forums are important places to discuss international migration trends, which also have protection and refugee dimensions. Although it is not easy to keep the refugee focus on the agenda of any of these uh, forums. Regional instruments have also proven effective, including in Africa, Latin America and Europe, as have more flexible means of implementation. Africa, as I mentioned, practices prima facie recognition of refugee status in which persons from spe specific countries in conflict are declared to be refugees without cumbersome and costly assessment processes. Other regions, in response to particular crises, have used humanitarian or temporary protection arrangements, again permitting entry and sanctuary, while accelerated procedures for manifestly unfounded or clearly abusive cases with due process guarantees have been implemented in individualised refugee status determination procedures and are a modern feature of asylum management systems today. UNHCR has also embarked on discussions on how to ensure refugees are able to access international migration options and labour markets and that the durable solutions are on the table at the very start of a conflict rather than only when UNHCR is attempting uh, to disengage. The important point in all of these approaches is that international solidarity and burden and responsibility initiatives, while being fundamental to to refugees, to the protection of refugees on political and humanitarian levels, need to be underpinned by the principles underlying the 1951 Convention and other human rights standards. Asylum figures need to be kept in perspective and challenged wherever they are exaggerated or manipulated for political ends. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.